So as I said, we're going to pick up the end of chapter 5, and just as kind of a brief review, if you remember last week, we studied um, chapter 5 and looked at Paul's hope, uh, the hope that he had, regardless of what he dealt with. Uh, we spoke about um, our body, the temple groaning, and kind of the, the our body deteriorating, and some of the challenges that might be come along with that, and um, how God fulfilled His promises, His confidence, Paul's confidence in in God to fulfill the promises, but also we should have confidence. Uh, we should have confidence knowing that even as we face difficulties in this life, that. God will fulfill his promises that he will take care of us. Doesn't mean we're going to have a perfect life and an easy life. Uh, but if our focus is on heavenly things, if our focus is on heaven, um, then the things in this life really don't matter. Uh, they're minuscule in comparison to eternity. Uh, we went on kind of in the middle part of chapter 5 and talked a little bit about um, Paul's motivation to teach, his motivation from fear of the Lord in verse 11, but also motivated by love of Christ. And again, things that should resonate with us. Uh, we should be motivated by both fear and love um, uh, when we're facing those things. Uh, we're facing challenges when we're, we're being motivated to do the work of the, the kingdom. And then we ended up in, in verse 17, uh, and that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, so what I'd like to do is read verses 17 through chapter 6, uh, verse 2. Uh, again, I think there's a, a lot of linkage, obviously so, with, with, uh, between the chapters. Um, and so I think the, the lines get blurred a little bit. But let's pick up, um, I'm going to read chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 17, through chapter 6, verse 2. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation." Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made himself who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that he might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So like I said, we're going to pick up uh, where we left off, uh, primarily focusing on verses 18 and forward. But verse 17 talks about that new creation, uh, that transition from the old life, the old man to the new man. Um, and transitions into this idea of reconciliation, of being reconciled. Um, and you think about Paul's ministry, he's saying here his ministry, the, the, the call that, that Christ has made through him is a, is a call for reconciliation. Um, and so when you think about the word reconciliation, 
you know, any accountants in the world, you, you can reconcile your spreadsheets, uh, but it's probably not a word that we use regularly. So you think about being, when you look up the definition, being friendly again, uh, to bring back into harmony. And so why do we have a need for reconciliation? It's because of sin, because sin has separated us from God. Uh, and so through Christ's death, we are reconciled. Again, looking, looking at verse 21, he who, made, he who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf that we might become righteousness of God in him. And so through that sacrifice, we're reconciled or we can be reconciled. Um, I thought about uh, Colossians chapter one. So let's turn over to Colossians chapter one. Briefly, Colossians 1, verses 19 through 22. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So the same idea here. Um, it just goes on to, to, to maybe explain it a little bit. I, I think about verse 21, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds. And so that whole that idea of, of being separated or alienated, but then... You know, hostile in mind, it's a pretty, pretty powerful statement when you think about um, not just separated, not just separate in, in a sense that we have caused a separation by our sin, but hostile. Um, I think about, you know, there are other words that, that are used, enmity, um, so that, that not only is there that separation, but that idea, uh, and I think about hostility, it's we're actively opposing Christ. We're actively turning against him when we sin. And so that's why there's such a call by Paul here, and not only to the Corinthians, but to us to be reconciled, to remove that hostility, to remove that enmity, to remove that not only separation, but um, that strife that's between us and the Father because of our sins. And again, it's, it's why the sacrifice to Christ is so important. Uh, because without that, there's no way to remove that enmity. There's no re way to remove that strife. There's no way to remove that division without that blood. Um, and so Paul calls on them to be reconciled, and he begs, pleads with them to be reconciled begs, pleads with us. Um, but it's not Paul. It's, it's Christ. It's God through Paul that's begging for their forgiveness. Um, and so we thought, think about that. I did want to spend a couple of minutes um, thinking about that last verse, he who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And I wanted us to look up several passages. Let's turn over to 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all the glory 
I'm sorry, that's a good verse, but not the right one. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. He bore our sins on the cross. By his wounds we are healed. Again, that same idea that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He bore our sins. He carried our sins. Um, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Let's see if I get the right chapter this time. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So he became cursed for us. He bore that curse of sin. He, he took on that sin, even though as this verse in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 21, he knew no sin, uh, but he became that curse for us. And so there's this call to, for, for them, for us to repent. Um, I don't have it up here, but Acts 3, um, you know, 30, uh, Acts 3 verse 19, real quick, Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So through, through that repentance, through turning from sin, turning to that blood of Christ, we have that refreshing, as it says here in, in Acts, our reconciliation. So again, it's just another way of thinking about it and, and a word that I thought made, it, made me Help me understand it a little bit better. Not only reconciliation, but that refreshing, refreshing a relationship, uh, refreshing of that connection between us and the Father, us and Christ. So I'm going to pause for a second um, before um, we continue on. Again, I think this idea is continued uh, in, as we get into chapter six and talk about grace uh, not being um, received in vain. And also the time of salvation is now. But before we move on, I wanted to pause and see if there's any comments about what I just said, but also any comments that kind of wraps up chapter five from, from last week. Okay. I got to get my other mic back. Sorry. I'll just take that one from him. Okay. So, um, yeah, real quick. I mean, this is this could be a, a very deep area, and we don't we don't have a, a time for it right now. But um, I will just bring this out. There's two really big ways of looking at this area right here, um, and some translations translate this differently. Um, the idea that uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Uh, some people look at it as Jesus was hanging on the cross and he became the worst sinner of all, like literally every sin was placed on him. Um, and there's a whole lot of, uh, around that idea. And there's a lot of people that believe that. I don't particularly. Um, I think there's another way of looking at it. When you go back to Isaiah 53, it specifically mentions that he was an offering for sin. And so offerings for sin never became the sin. They were an offering for sin. Um, and that's, that's how I look at this in other verses. Even in 1 Peter 4, 
uh, I don't see that it's literally saying he had our sins in his body, but he took away our sins by the fact that his body was on the cross. He was crucified. So depending on how you read those and interpret those, you could see it totally differently. Um, I just wanted to throw that out there because people look at it differently, and I, I think it can, it can lead you down very different trails and, and maybe get you in spots that you don't want to be in if you really go all the, follow all the steps. But it's deep. I just wanted to throw that out there for people to think about, and, yeah. and that's deep as we really need to go. Probably. Yeah, you just throw it out there and then, then hand the mic back to me. <laughs> we can go down these two rabbit holes and spend two or three classes, but it's, it's and all joking aside, I appreciate the comment, and, and it is accurate that, you know, there's a whole lot in this, and I think back to, you know, when you think about the, the shadow of the Old Testament, the Paschal Lamb, you know, the sins were placed on, on the Paschal Lamb, and then it was sent out from, from the, the camp. And so the idea of the sins being placed on that lamb and then sent away, you know, Christ is our perfect lamb. And so then how does that coordinate with, and so I'm, I don't want to get into the whole discussion because it is, it's deep, and, and I don't know that we have definitive answers. It's one, one of these theoretical things that we look at the scriptures, and it's, it's complicated, and um, probably one of those things that we could debate for days and days and days and never really come to a conclusion because both sides of this discussion have some very valid points. And so, but, um, but thank you. We're not going to go into that, maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, so before we, Leanne's got a comment before you um, do. I just wanted to say that um, just like... Um, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. We have to imitate him daily, daily. And um, just like he's, he's telling the Christians to forgive and to, and to, to be like, the, like Jesus, we have, to, we have to walk like Jesus too, and we have to be like Jesus as, as well. Very good. Mitch? Just quickly, uh, you know, the answer the question, were the sins literally put on Jesus? I, I don't know. And I don't know that any of us really would know, literally, right? But did Jesus literally bear the consequence of our sins? Yes, you can see that, right? The, yeah. the scriptures tells us plainly that he did. Yeah. And I'm just going to leave that one, not go into it anymore. Because again, it's a complicated topic and we could spend days and days and days. And I was hoping to get caught up today. Um, and if we, if we spend much more time, but any, any other comments, because it is, it's a, it's a interesting study. It's an interesting thing. I think that we should all dig into, um, but not necessarily in this class. Uh, it, but any other comments? Okay. I do appreciate your comments though. So thank you. And everybody's comments. So thank you. Um, so we'll continue on uh, chapter six uh, verses uh, one and two. Uh, read those again and working together with him. We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Um, for he said at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So again, I think, as I said, this is very much linked to the last few verses in chapter five, as far as the idea of reconciliation and the idea of that grace 
that brings us the reconciliation. And so Paul is calling for the Corinthians, Pauling, calling for us to live as, as we should, as they should. Um, and we, we looked um, at some other verses that talk about that reconciliation that came through his body. Um, I think to start off, though, I thought one of the things that I hadn't really thought about until I started studying for this, these um, lessons and preparing for this a couple months ago, beginning of verse 6, and working together with him. So Paul is saying, and working together with him. So, so Paul is saying he is working with him. So who's the him? Well, it's God. Working together. So Paul is working together with him. We also urge you to receive the grace of God, to not receive the grace of God in vain. So I think, again, it's a powerful statement and a, and a powerful reinforcement of, of who Paul is to these individuals, but also what the word is to us. Uh, so how is he working with him, with God, it's through the words, through the words that he was communicated, through the plea that he made to be reconciled, uh, to not receive God's grace in vain. Um, so how could they receive God's grace in vain? How could we, how can we receive God's grace in vain? What does that mean? And I do want to pause for a second and get everyone's thoughts on this. The way you become self-righteous is you think that you know everything there is to know about God's word and everything and that you're so perfect and that that you you you're so blessed and everything by God that nothing in the world can ever affect you. And that is a very 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 big sin and it's 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 Self-righteousness is what the Pharisees and Sadducees And so the idea of relying on self or self-righteousness, how else can we or, or could the Corinthians receive the grace of, or not receive the grace of God? Well, let Paul answer that question. First Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. He said, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached. That's the grace he's talking about. The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, and by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I have preached to you, unless you've believed in vain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Don't hold on to it. Yeah, if you don't hold on to the word, if you don't hold on to uh, the teachings of the apostles. And so, the same applies to us, is, is once we've received that grace... Once we've received that, that reconciliation that comes through, through Christ, through his blood, how do we hold to it? It's by staying in the word. It's by making sure that we are working to make sure that we are in alignment with um, the word of God and, and with his teachings. Yeah, um, I, th I think Paul answers in verse 3. I mean, the, in my mind, the context here is... Chapter five, verse twenty. Ambassadors. So, what's an ambassador? You know, you're you're an active representative with some authority for the one for, of the one you represent. So, if you do something to discredit the message that you have, which is in verse three, you're taking the grace of the, the grace in vain. Again, think about the full context of Second Corinthians. It's about defending Paul's credibility and the credibility of the church because they are associated with Paul. So if you do something to 
discredit the gospel that I've given you. That is, um, and that's the way I read verse three anyway, uh, being offensive having the ministry be something to be blamed. <clears throat> yeah. So again, whether it's, it's holding to the word or whether it's to, and I, and again, I think there's, there's interweaving here, both from a Paul standpoint, uh, that idea of discrediting, and we're going to talk a little bit more, more about that um, in verses three and four, as far as Paul walking the walk and talking the talk to use kind of our terminology. But I think you're correct. Um, we have to we have to not only make sure as individuals we're adhering to the word, but especially if we're preaching the word and teaching the word, we need to make sure we're walking the walk and talking the talk. Again, I think Paul further reinforcing his his apostolic authority, uh, further reinforcing what God, again, back to verse one, together with him. Yeah, I think it's a powerful statement when you think about it. Paul is saying, you know, God and I are working together. Um, and it's a powerful statement for Paul, but it's a powerful statement for us because um, as we present the word, as we teach, that's what we're doing. We're working together with, with God to try to bring people to him. Granted, different than the apostles, but we're using the word in that same kind of idea with that same kind of idea. I think he uh, he kind of touches on the the receiving the grace of God in vain in verse one, but he um, goes through some uh, some qualifications of what they've done, and I th I suspect that there's not just one way, of course, to believe this in vain. Because as, as we have, we've had different answers. Um, but I wonder if it's, uh, if it's verse 12, you are not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Yeah. Um, and then he goes into more, more detail on that. Yeah. Um, I suspect that might be what he's leading up to, but I, you know, it, it's one of those things that he, he, he brings up this, this concept of you could believe this in vain. And, and there are multiple causes of that. Well, and I, th I think related to the, this, the Corinthians, there's probably multiple things he's speaking to. You know, I think there's multiple connections back to 1 Corinthians and some of the things that they had done. I think to your point in the latter part of this chapter, uh, that, that affection, and we're going to talk a little bit about it, that brotherly love. And so could be for each other. Again, think back to some of the issues of 1 Corinthians that were addressed. But here, their affection for Paul and their, their um, unwillingness to, to believe what he's saying, their questioning of him and that affection that should have been there, uh, that love that should have been there. So there's probably multiple things. And that's part of the reason I wanted us to kind of talk through it for a couple of minutes, because I do think there's multiple ideas and none of which are incorrect. Um, that could be the correct answer here. So... Um, Back to our passage, the day of salvation is at hand. Um, and you think about, think about what all we've talked about and what all we will talk about in this as far as all the things that Paul has, bored, has dealt with, um, you know, through all of the different difficulties. Um, and, uh, and, and that keeping it in the back of our mind and back to one of the, of the things that Bill mentioned um, in verse 3, giving no cause for offense and I think it's, it all kind of wraps up in that call the, for reconciliation. The day of salvation has arrived. Uh, it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, so looking forward to that reconciliation through the Son. The time of reconciliation is now. 
not just first century, it's now. Uh, and so again, it's a plea not only for the Corinthians, but a plea for us. And, and I think it is a, to our conversation, a direct plea to the Corinthians around issues that they're dealing with, around challenges that they're facing. But I think it's a larger, uh, again, the day of salvation is now a larger topic around being reconciled and, and being uh, a returning that idea of refreshing for all of us. Uh, in that time of refreshing, that time of reconciliation, that time of salvation, you know, is going to be from now until Christ come or for each individual until we, until we leave this life. And so, again, I think it's a larger idea here. Um, back to some of the comments also, we continue in verse three and four, where Paul talks about how he's worked to make sure that his work is, is completely in alignment with God, with what he should be doing. And like we said, he walks the walk, he talks the talk to use our, our terminology. So he gave no offense, he took nothing from them. Um, he endured much, um, all of these trials and these difficulties, for what reason? to win souls. That's, that was his goal. Um, he, he gave up certain liberties that he rightfully had. Why? To win souls. And again, a great example for us. Um, I think the other thing I think about relative to these verses, um, gave no offense in order, to, in order that the ministry be not discredited. I think, again, Paul, walking the walk, talking the talk, you think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, where Paul says, be imitators of him just as he was of Christ. Um, so powerful words. You know, he's, he's in my mind saying, look to the word, look to what we're saying, but look to me. And that's a pretty dawning something when you're talking about young Christians. You know, I try to do what I'm supposed to, I'm trying to live the life I'm supposed to. But in a new Christian comes, if I would be hesitant to say, do as I do. Uh, you know, again, I get the principle, I get the idea, but you think about how much Paul, and the reason I bring that up is how, how strongly Paul believes that he's doing what's right, but also how much he's working to be diligent. To, to not cause that offense with those that he's teaching. And it's something that we should aspire to. It's something that we should, we should imitate, uh, imitating Christ, but also imitating the work of the apostles. Um, as they're bearing through these difficulties, he said, even in the face of all of this, the stonings, the, the, the beatings, the imprisonment, imitate me. And so again, Powerful statement when we think about him working and with, with God, with his sincerity. Uh, we'll continue on in verses 4 and 5. Everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and affliction and hardship and beatings and imprisonments. And he goes on. So he was patient as he bore through these difficulties. Um, he, he, Beatings, imprisonment, we can look forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that lays all of this out in tumults. I think back to Acts chapters 13 and following, the riots that happened. Um, I think back to how he, again, is working 
Uh, you see here in, in watchfulness, being on guard, not only, I think, for himself, but we think about the context of, of 2 Corinthians and his worry for the church at Corinth. He's being watchful for others. And so, again, a great example for us. We got to be watchful for ourselves, yes. But I think in the context here, he's watchful for other Christians and he's worry, worrisome. That's probably not the right word, but he's worried about other Christians. And so, again, a great example for us. We not only need to worry about ourselves, we need to worry about others in the faith um, that, and, and try to pull as many people along with us as we can. Um, but again, no reproach, verses 6 and 7, being brought on um, through his work. Pureness and sincerity guided by the wisdom and power. Um, and then I want us to kind of pick up in verses 8 and t- eight through 10. So, by glory and dishonor, by evil report, good report, regarding, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, and having nothing yet possessing all. And so Paul's, by his own account, um, is saying, he's, in my mind, I'm successful, I'm blessed. But by the world's standards, is he successful and is he blessed? Uh, I think the obvious answer to that's no. If you, if you, tagged anybody in the world, <clears throat> the people I work with, said, okay, what equals success? Beatings, imprisonment, poverty, being hungry, does that equal success? There's nobody that I work with that would go, yeah, give me that. Um, but I think that's what Paul's saying here. Um, and my point in that is Paul's success, as should be ours, what we deem as successful, what we list as the positives in our lives are going to be oftentimes the opposite of what the world would say as success. Uh, the world, as these passages have pointed to, and some of the people in the church at Corinth pointed to Paul as a liar and as a deceiver. Um, they slandered him. Uh, in these verses, they listed him as a nobody. They exposed his physical difficulties. He said he wasn't a good speaker. Uh, They didn't have a good presence. Um, He himself speaks about how he was punished, um, how he's poor. Um, And so, but what we know is Paul has said in these passages in the preceding chapters, that all doesn't matter to him. Why? Because he has that hope back to the previous chapter. He has that focus on, on heaven and on service to God. So in all of these things, he found joy he found purpose because of that commitment to, to the Father. And again, I think it's a great example for us um, to, to make sure that as we face difficulties in this life, that, that we are successful if we remain faithful, um, even though the world around us might be pointing in the other direction. Um, I did want us to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Again, Paul writing to Timothy um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, kind of speaking to this point, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. 
again, summing up this whole idea and Paul's, Paul's approach to his life in just a couple of verses here. Godliness is actually a means of great gain. Um, brought nothing into this world, will take nothing out. Um, and I, to paraphrase, as long as we're focusing, and serve, focusing on heaven and serving God, that's all that matters. This world doesn't matter, whether it's physical difficulties, whether it's, whether it's wealth or poverty, it doesn't matter. If we, you know, I, Leland um, said this last, uh, last week, if you, you miss heaven, you miss it all. I can't remember who said that, but, um, you know, it's something that we're all very, have all heard before. Um, and so, with that in mind, um, even though the world might not know us, might not think anything of us, uh, to these verses, and Paul is saying the world doesn't know him. The world didn't know him. The world didn't think anything of him. But there are those who do know, uh, whether that be the brethren who know we're being faithful, more importantly, God. Uh, God sees these things and knows these things, and God is with us. Um, and so being known of people doesn't matter, but being known of God absolutely matters. So I'll pause for a second and take a sip because I've been talking, talking, talking. Yeah, good thoughts, Jason. I think to me the tricky, the tricky part about this whole section is um, if you just go back to verse three about giving, no offense. So the message is going to offend people. All right, Paul's even. I uh, talked about that uh, first, first Corinthians 1, where he talks about it being foolishness to some, right? So you got this balance you're having to draw. Like, you have to be an ambassador. Uh, you know, you have to be an ambassador and pure and knowledgeable and long-suffering. But that whole time, you're going to offend people. But in verse 3, you're not supposed to give offense. So really tricky balance. And how do you... How do you do that? In my mind, what Paul is, is trying to focus on, if I were to sum it up, is the way you would be offensive is if it were cast as your message that it has credibility because you are saying it. Um, and that's, that's what they were trying to, get, to go against. This is Paul's message, and here's why it doesn't work because of this reasons and this reasons. It's inconsistent with the law, et cetera. That's how you'd be offensive with the message. If you say, this is something that is right because I'm saying it. Mm-hmm. And, and an encounter to that is to, to remember whose message it is. You're the ambassador. You're not the uh, originator. Yeah. I, I think, again, going back to the first verse, working together with him, um, being, being the, the, um, the voice of him. Not, not my own voice. I think the other thing that I would add to that, and we're going to get into in a second, verses 11 through 13, um, Paul has this plea to them to open their hearts, but also he, he's laying out his love for them. So if we're presenting God's word and we don't truly have that love for the other in our heart, and we're not approaching it with love, these verses 14 through 18 where he's calling them to come out from the world and separate themselves from the world, those words can be offensive potentially to someone, but he's trying to couch it in that love. 
and that love for them and that, that relationship with them. And so I, I completely agree with you. It's not our words, it's God's words, but then we have to present them in the right way um, with love in our heart. Yeah. Back to verse one. Uh-huh. Uh, working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. God does extend grace to us. He offers grace to us. But the verses that follow make it pretty clear, I think, that there are also expectations right. that go along with that. And that's perfectly reasonable. Mm-hmm. And we, we need to make sure that we understand that. I think it's very, very important. Yeah. yeah. It, it, grace is available for everyone, but doesn't mean everyone's going to take advantage of it or come in contact with it, that blood. Um, so I think very good statement. Very good statement. So we're going to continue on, um, again, kind of dovetailing um, into what we were saying in a second, but talking about some of these, the, these verses 11 through 13 as far as love. Leanne. I just wanted to say um, Paul was a great example of coming out of the world. Paul had a very religious life, and he was very um, enthusiastic, but he was he was also very, he could have been a little bit worldly too. And um, he came, He when he became an apostle, he gave all that up. He gave all his uh, power and money and everything up to live this life. So he would not be asking them to do anything that he didn't do himself. And people say, oh, it's so hard to come away from the world. I can't give up my, I can't give up my lifestyle well, when it's compared to salvation and compared to heaven, your lifestyle really doesn't compare when it com- comes to heaven. So Yeah, and so, so Paul definitely did. He walked the walk and he talked the talk. And so definitely an example that we should, we should follow. So in verses 11 through 13, our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You're not restrained by us, but you are restrained by your own affections. Now, in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So I think we've talked about in in this entire book, Paul appealing to them and showing his love to them. Uh, He shouldn't have to defend himself because of that relationship that he he already had with them, but he is. Uh, And so I think in these verses, he's very directly speaking to them, you Corinthians, um, calling them in essence by name, um, make the and making these statements really personal. He's opening his heart to them and kind of back to one of the comments I made to, to Bill's comments. I think this love is, is being set up as he's about to address some additional problems with them. But, you know, the love, that, that connection um, with them is, is probably one of the problems, not probably, it is one of the problems that Paul is trying to address here. And, and we can look at multiple verses, John 13, Brotherly love is a mark of true discipleship, adding to those things. Um, it's a love of true spiritual growth in Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, but more importantly, in First, First John 4, verses 20 and 21, brotherly love is required. And so I think when we stop and think about, um, I think he's, he's directing the, the church at Corinth to make a correction here. 
Um, they need to have that love for each other. You know, we think back to some of the divisions that we, we've referenced in 1 Corinthians that were being addressed. But I think the, the separation between them and him, uh, I think he's pointing to as another issue that they need to address. Um, and this love, again, and we're, we're going to stop here, I think. I got a couple more minutes, and so we might get into it. I think this love sets up the remainder of this chapter and the, the call that he's making to them, the, the appeal that he's making to them to come out of this world, come out of the relationships to this world, the connections to this world, and separate themselves. I think without this call for brotherly love and making sure that he's setting up the context, uh, sometimes... Um, it can cause offense. Anytime we're calling someone out on errors in their life, I think that it can cause offense. And I think especially when we start thinking about um, when there are issues such as this where they're falling back into um, maybe relationships that they had prior to becoming Christians or more likely they're, they're looking to those that they shouldn't, these false teachers, and putting their love there rather than with Paul. And so... Um, continuing on, um, that loving appeal sets up the remainder of the chapter. Um, but I want us to get into these verses for a couple of minutes at least, and I know I'm not going to cover it in its entirety, but I do want to go ahead and, and read through. So, do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from the midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be a son and a daughter to me, says the Lord Almighty." And so rather than getting into the detail here, I'll just kind of leave kind of some general thoughts um, that I thought about relative to these verses. You know, oftentimes, these verses are used, rightfully so, to talk about marriage and that bond, but I think we need to make sure that we're thinking about that, this in these verses beyond that, because I do think from a context standpoint, that's not just what Paul's talking about here. I think it's he's talking about friendships and relationships and maybe even close business relationships. How are we thinking about this idea of being unequally yoked or being unequally bound to an unbeliever? Uh, how are we choosing our friends? How are we choosing those that we, that we bring into our homes and make close to us and our families? Um, yeah and we'll get into it more, I think it very rightly so can be applied to marriage, but I think it's very much broader than that. So we'll pause there and pick up there next week. Thank you all for your comments.